Hello and welcome. This is the What If I Told You podcast, a show that is raining with blood and fire. Just kidding. We've been watching too much House of the Dragon. Yeah. And if y'all haven't been, that probably didn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, every I feel like everybody has been watching House of the Dragon. I have one episode that I need to watch. Probably now, too, because it's Sunday. I didn't watch last week's episode. Because there were fucking people in my house. Check out our TikTok and our Instagram. Um, also, our merch. Our link is at the top of this episode description. And email us at whatifitoldyoupodcast at gmail.com. Uh, my left foot all of a sudden feels very hot and it hurts. Do you know that my left foot is also a movie? Oh, didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I've never actually seen my left foot, but Daniel Day-Lewis stars in it. And he went, like, full method acting because that's who he is as a person. Yeah. And well, he was in a wheelchair, the character. But yeah. he... Rode around in a wheelchair for, like, the duration of filming and prepping for the film. I believe he won his first Oscar with My Left Foot. Hmm. So. It's very nice. That's random. I love random knowledge. Now, if I ever watch that movie, I'll know that information. Yeah. Yeah. Method acting is, uh, it's wild. Like, Leo, when he prepped for filming The Revenant, decided to, like, sleep in the carcass of a dead animal for a while. Yeah. Like, okay. It's a bold move. Very Star Wars of you. Um. Oh, that's... It's got a lot of lime happening in it. This is White Claw Surf Watermelon Lime Smash. That I'm drinking. Too limey? I wouldn't say too limey because I really like lime. It's just, I figure, I anticipated it being heavy on the watermelon, but it's like the reverse. It's probably Hmm. preferable to be heavy on the lime because I feel like if it's too watermelony, it might go a little bit medicine. Oh yeah, for sure. So, it's good. Uh, <clears throat> what is it? Three thirty. It is. Um. What have I done today? Oh, we went to Michael's. Michael's. They have all their Halloween stuff out, and I wanted to like buy all of it, but we're gonna be doing construction on our house, so. Yeah, that would have been pointless. Pointless. It makes me sad. But I did buy the Funyun chips and the Cheeto chips. The Cheeto chips were actually very good. I feel like you can't go wrong with that. It's just basically a cheese chip. Right. But the Funyun chips... They were so weird, bro. They were so weird. Yeah, I mean, I just... Why try to replicate Funyun anything, really? Yeah. I also tried... I've I've tried to eat them in a multitude of ways in order to just eat them because we bought them. 
and I dipped them in French onion dip because French onion dip makes everything good. That's what I was going to suggest. It No, it made it worse. The French onion amplified the funion. Mm. So therefore, it's just a mouthful of unpleasant. And then I tried just sour cream, and it was, it was acceptable. Mm. It toned down the weird onion flavor that they picked because it doesn't taste like funyuns you know because funyuns are good yeah i like funyuns you know the biscuits and gravy chips never had them you didn't ever try the biscuits and gravy chips no they were the a real they were weird in a i will eat this whole bag kind of way right like are biscuits and gravy chips my favorite no but when we bought them I could not stop eating them because they did taste very weirdly like biscuits and gravy. I feel like that's a hard flavor to capture in a chip. Yeah, they they definitely captured it in the chip. But the Funyuns, which I was thinking I would eat them and taste Funyun, but it really just tastes tastes like an onion-flavored chip. Yeah, that's not the same. That's, no, especially because I don't like onions. Maybe someone who likes onions. I'll have to try them before I leave. Yeah. The Cheeto ones, they don't necessarily like taste like Cheetos. They just taste like cheese chips. Well, and any cheese chip is good. That's right. Cheese makes everything good. So... That's that's where we are today. Heavy on the disappointment also because it's fucking hot. And it's supposed to be 98 degrees tomorrow. Listen, we have no AC at work. I can't handle that. Get out of here, Nick Lachey. Jordan got a new kitten today. That's cute. She named it Tito. Like the vodka. Oh, okay. I was thinking, as soon as you said Tito, I thought vodka, but I assumed maybe it was something else. But no, vodka. Is she 21? She'll be 21 in October. She should have waited until October to name this cat after vodka. Straight to jail. She certainly is about to get a ticket. Because I I would assume, since she's a God-fearing Christian, that she's never tasted alcohol. That's correct. She has never tasted alcohol. (laughs) Especially Tito's. Ugh, vodka. I can't drink vodka. It makes me want to throw up. Oh my gosh, I'm so bloated. Do you um want some crumble cookie? No. That'll probably fix your bloat. <laughs> Absolutely not. <clears throat> mm. Well, anyways... It's not morning. We already said that. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. We have Sonic drinks, and Maddie also has a white claw with her Sonic drink. Yep. I like to double fist my liquids. Yeah. Anyways, uh, first there is a little bit of news that we're going to share, but we're not going to dive into it because that'll be a whole thing. So... We're going to be releasing a mini bonus episode mm-hmm. discussing this piece of information. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Yes, it's 
very huge and important. Yeah. Oh, I have to burp, but I can't. Um, I don't know that we have a chip's basement today. Because he has not sent anything in the group chat in a while. No. It's really disappointing. But we did try and record together, but it didn't work out. Yeah, we all were on different shit. Yeah. So, soon, though. Yeah. I mean, we can also record virtually if it comes down to it. Very true. So, I mean, people do it all the time. Dude, I burnt the shit out of my wrist. Oof. When I was meal prepping. Freaking burned me with some zucchini. Goddamn zucchini. I know. Today, we're going to be talking about the mysterious disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when this shit happened. I, well, obviously, because it happened in 2014. Yeah, I do too. But, uh... I actually remember watching coverage about this while eating at the Mexican restaurant in town on their TV. <laughs> That's funny for a Mexican restaurant to... Have the news on? Have the news on, yeah. Yep. It's cool, though. You want to do the so what happened here? No. Yeah, let's just go ahead and end this. Yeah, this is it. Bye. We, we said the topic, said we remembered it, and then moved on. <laughs> that would be really funny. <laughs> Although I feel like other people might not think it's that funny. Probably not. Come on. Where's no. your sense of humor? No. They'd be or, like, all right. Well, fuck cool. this podcast. Fuck me then, right? Yeah, actually. Why is my left foot hot? It hurts. Well, just all of a sudden. What did you do? Nothing. I just was sitting. Take your shoe off. That's probably a good plan. My shoes got super fucking dirty last night. What were you doing? And why were you wearing white shoes doing it? Well, I didn't know I was going to be doing it, and I happened to be wearing white fucking shoes. Is that better? I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. This foot is sweating a lot. This one's not. This one's cool. I have, uh, I am not a podiatrist, so I have no idea. I don't want to That is a foot this. doctor, right? Yeah. A podiatrist? Okay. I thought so. Anyways, we should probably start recording this. Yeah. Well, it is recording. Well, you're right. Um, Malaysian Airlines. I've abbreviated it to MAF 370 because typing Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 is a bitch. Um, so, Flight 370 was... Obviously, your typical international passenger flight, your run-of-the-mill flying from here to there, and it was operated by Malaysian Airlines. It was scheduled to depart Kuala Lumpur on March 8, 2014 at 12.35 a.m. and arrive at Beijing, inter- Beijing Capital International Airport. At 6.30 a.m. So that's a relatively short flight for an international flight. Yeah. 
But I guess it makes sense because they're all in the same region. Any international flight from the U.S. is like fucking seven hours. Because we're alone. Uh, the plight, the planned flight duration was five hours and 34 minutes and should consume about 82,000 pounds of jet fuel. Now this becomes important later. Um, the aircraft carried usually around 108,000 108,200 pounds of jet fuel. So, uh, not quite double what it needs, about 20,000 extra pounds of jet fuel in case they needed to reroute their flight plan or whatever, they would have fuel in order to do so. So they could theoretically fly for 7 hours and 31 minutes before running out of fuel. This flight disappeared on March 8th. 2014 during this flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. The crew's last communication to air traffic control occurred approximately 38 minutes after takeoff. The flight was flying over the South China Sea and that's when the aircraft lost was lost from air traffic control radar just a few minutes after communication was lost. So voice communication is lost and then radar tracking through air traffic control is lost just a little bit after that. But the flight was still trackable on military radar for about another hour. The flight deviated westward from the planned course, crossed the Malay Peninsula and the Andaman Sea, Andaman? No, I bet it's in Daman. When the flight fell off radar, it was 200 nautical miles northwest of Penang Island in northwestern peninsular Malaysia. All 227 passengers and 12 crew, men crew members were presumed deceased. Goddamn. I think all of this happens up next is the timeline, but it all happens within like... A handful of hours. Yeah. The lost communication, at least, happens within about one hour. MAF 370 last made voice contact with air traffic control on March 8th, 2014 at 1.19 a.m. Malaysian Standard Time when it was over the South China Sea, which was, like we said, 30 min 38 minutes after takeoff. At 1.22 a.m., the flight disappeared from air traffic control radar screens, but was still seen by military radar. Um, 370 was seen by military radar during turning sharply from the charted northeastern course to head west across the Malay Peninsula, and it stayed on this course until it left military radar. The flight left um, military radar at 2.22 a.m. while it was over the Andaman Sea, which was 22 nautical miles north of Penang Island. 200. Uh, wow, you're right. 200 nautical miles north of Penang Island in Malaysia. Um, like Maddie just said, this is a really short span of time. And... 
the disappearance happened in such a short window of time and no one knows what was happening aboard the plane during the time after voice communication was lost and when the flight inevitably crashed. So, no fucking clue. Yeah. What was happening? We'll never know. Uh, yes, we absolutely will never know. But I just want to know what the passengers are thinking. What? They're like, Terror. What? what the fuck? Hey. Or maybe they just didn't notice. At least they probably didn't notice for a while. Yeah. Because, like, when I get on a plane, I usually just put on my headphones because my Apple, my big Apple headphones have noise canceling. Mm -hmm. So I just watch, like, whatever movie I had downloaded before the flight, turn on the noise canceling, and fucking don't pay attention. I I could have went through the entire (laughs) flight with these people and not known. That probably would have been better. Probably. I would have unknowingly plummeted to my death, and it would have been peaceful. Fuck it. Yeah. You know, hey. So, of course, analysis of satellite communication between the plane and Imarsits. Yeah. Imarsits, which was a British satellite telecommunications company. Um. The communication network concluded that the flight was in the air until at least 8.19 a.m. and had begun to fly south into the southern Indian Ocean. On March 17th, Australia took over the search as the flight path emphasized that the aircraft had entered the southern Indian Ocean. And on March 24th, the Malaysian government stated that the final location determined by the satellite communication was far from any possible landing site and therefore concluded that it had ended, which means crashed, in the Indian Ocean. From October of 2014 to January 2017, there was 120,000 square kilometers, which is 46,000 square miles, um, of the Indian Ocean floor, like, Completely surveyed. That's a fuck ton of space. That's really huge. The location focused on was about 1,800 kilometers southwest of Perth in Western Australia, but no evidence was found. Mm. October of 2017, the Malaysian government released its final report concerning MAF-370, and the following were noted. Neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication systems relayed a distress signal, indications of bad weather, or technical problems before the aircraft vanished. Two passengers traveling on stolen passports were investigated but eliminated as suspects. Malaysian police identified the captain as the prime suspect of human if human intervention was the cause of the disappearance after clearing all others on the flight of suspicion over possible motives. That's sketch. Mm, Yeah. Power was lost to the aircraft satellite data unit at some point between one Oh seven and two Oh three. And, um, the SDU, the satellite data unit logged onto Imarsat's, satellite communication network at 225 which was three minutes after the aircraft had left the range of radar 
So based on the analysis of the satellite communications, the aircraft was postulated to have turned south after passing north of Sumatra, and the flight continued for six hours with little deviation in its track, ending when its fuel was exhausted. In January 2018, a private U.S. Marine Exploration Company, Ocean Infinity, conducted a search. It began its search in the search zone around 35.6 degrees south and 92.8 degrees east. Now, this location was deemed the most likely site of the crash, according to a drift study done in 2017, but it's not really clear if anything came of the search, and it probably nothing. Yeah, I think they found basically nothing. I mean, I think essentially they're looking for the body of the plane itself, which seems obvious, but they've never found the body of the plane. Yeah. Still to this day. Fucking weird. It's super weird. Um, So the aircraft itself was a Boeing 777-2H6ER. The serial number was 28420, registration 9M-MRO. It was the 404th Boeing 777 ever produced, and it took its first flight on May 14th, 2002, and was delivered to Malaysian Airlines new on May 31st, 2002. Clearly, the first flight from May 14th was like a test flight or whatever. Uh, The total capacity was 282 passengers, and during the the life of the aircraft, it had never been involved in any major accidents. It had one minor incident in 2012 during a taxi at Shanghai, And that resulted in a broken wingtip. I don't know how serious that is, but it says minor, so I'm guessing not serious. The last maintenance was done February 23rd of 2014, and it was found to be in compliance with all airworthiness directives for the airframe and engine. So she was fine. No issues with the plane itself. Right. Okay, so there were 227 passengers from 14 different nations. Now, obviously, we're not going to list all the passengers. And none of my research um, revealed the names of these passengers anyway, so it's probably confidential information. Yeah. Um, Two passengers we kind of briefly talked about earlier, were from Iran and were later found to have boarded the flight using an Austrian and an Italian passport, respectively. So, uh, there you go. Um, So, Australia had six passengers, Canada had two, China had 152, so they made up the majority of the passengers on the flight. Uh, Four were from France, one from Hong Kong, five from India, Seven from Indonesia, two from Iran, 50 from Malaysia, one from the Netherlands, two from New Zealand, one from Russia, one from Taiwan, two from Ukraine, and three from the U.S. Uh, so there were a lot of people on this flight. Yeah, that's a that's, lot. That seems like a really full flight. Oh, yeah. 
Is this like a three-row plane? Could be. Like, you've got, like, the... Like, the middle. The middle, the like window, two. and then in the aisle. Yeah. Right? Like, a two-aisle plane. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what it feels like. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, there were 12 total crew members, um, but we're only going to talk about the two pilots controlling the plane. The pilot in command, which was, like, the main pilot... He was Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah, and he was 53 years old, from Penang. He joined Malaysian Airlines in 1981 as a cadet pilot, and then received his commercial pilot's license in 1983. He had a total of 18,365 hours of flying experience. That's a fuck ton. Yeah. His co-pilot was First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid, and he was 27. He joined Malaysian Airlines as a cadet pilot in 2007. He became a second officer in 2010, and in 2013 began training to be a first officer. So he was newly a first officer during this flight. I don't know what that means. But Farik had 2,763 hours of flying. That's still a lot. Oh, yeah. So those are the, I was going to say cast and crew, but the, the passengers and crew. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this is like the disappearance part of it. At 12.42 a.m., it took off from the runway and was cleared by air traffic control to climb to 18,000 feet. At 12.46, air traffic control cleared MAF to climb to 35,000 feet. And at 1.01 a.m., MAF, the MAF crew reported to air traffic control that they had reached 35,000 feet. Crew confirmed this again to air traffic control at 1.08 a.m. The final transmission from MAF was an automated position report sent using the aircraft communications addressing and reporting system at 1.06 a.m. This is not the last communication. This is the last automated transmission from the aircraft. Yes, because the, um, ti- the times c- confused me because it says crew confirmed at 1.08, last transmission or final transmission at 1.06 so I had to clarify this for my for my own self. Yeah. Um, and this report communicated that there was a total of 96,600 pounds of fuel remaining, as well as providing a position report. The last verbal signal to air traffic control came at 1.19 a.m. from Captain Zahari. And this, it reads as follows. Lumpur radar, this is air traffic control, Uh, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh, 120.9, good night. Then MAF replied, good night, Malaysian 370. The crew was expected to send another signal to air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh as the flight passed into Vietnamese airspace. Obviously, this did not occur. The captain of another aircraft attempted to contact MAF just after 1.30 using the international air distress frequency. The captain said he was able to make contact, but only heard mumbling and static. Oh, that's weird. 
attempts to call MAF cockpit at 2.39 a.m. and 7.13 a.m. were unanswered, but acknowledged by the aircraft's SDU. Which is weird. So, they it's kind of like the, the aircraft system was still operating and receiving the messages. Yeah. But it just wasn't responding. Okay, so radar. Um, at 1.20 a.m., Flight 370 was observed on radar at the Kuala Lumpur ACC as it passed the navigational waypoint Igari, I don't know, at basically 6 degrees, 56 feet and 12 inches north, three, 103 degrees, 35 feet, 6 inches east. Sheesh. Coordinates. Um, basically, it, it's in the Gulf of Thailand. So at 1.20 a.m., the flight is in the Gulf of Thailand. Five seconds later, the mode S, which is a secondary surveillance radar, symbol disappeared from radar screens. So basically, air traffic control or the Kuala Lumpur airport system is seeing the plane on the screen at 1.20, and then five seconds later, it's gone. Right. Hmm. At 121, Flight 370 disappeared from the radar, sque- radar screen at Kuala Lumpur ACC and was lost at about the same time on radar at Ho Chi Minh ACC, which reported that the aircraft was at the nearby waypoint BITOD. I don't know what that means. I don't remember what I read. It was, I read too many things. There's a lot of weird details in this that are very hard to remember because I am not a pilot. Right. That would make sense. But Ho Chi Minh saw the location that the aircraft was near. And there are, like, specific points that allow them to track planes as they fly. I think a lot... Flight routes are very weird. When you look at, like, a map of flight routes from one place to another, they're never direct because they have to make, uh, they have to plan for flight routes from other places so planes don't crash, obviously. Right. So that's probably the radar that Kuala Lumpur and Ho Chi Minh are looking at is flight status tracking or, like, path tracking. Right. So, air traffic control uses secondary radar, which relies on a signal emitted by a transponder on each aircraft. So, that makes sense. Therefore, the ADS-B transponder was no longer functioning on Flight 370 after 1.21 a.m. The final transponder data indicated that the aircraft was flying at its assigned cruise altitude of... 350, which is basically 35,000 feet, and was traveling at 471 knots, which is 542 miles per hour. True airspeed. Interesting. Um, Ships also use knots instead of miles per hour. Yep. I don't really understand... 
the purpose of it. it. Does sound cool, I guess. It does sound much cooler to say I was traveling 471 knots than 471 miles per hour. Right. There were few clouds around this point, no rain, and no lightning nearby. Later analysis estimated that Flight 370 had 41,500 kilograms, a.k.a. 91,500 pounds, of fuel when it disappeared from secondary radar. At the time that the transponder stopped functioning, military radar showed Flight 370 turning right and then beginning a left turn to a southwesterly direction. So from 1.30 until 1.35, military radar showed that Flight 370 was at 35,700 feet altitude on a 231-degree magnetic heading with a ground speed of 496 knots. Flight 370 continued across the Malay Peninsula, fluctuating between 31,000 and 33,000 feet in altitude. A civilian primary radar at Sultan Ismail Petra Airport with a 60 nautical mile range made four detections of an unidentified aircraft between 130 and 152. The tracks of the unidentified aircraft are consistent with those of the military data tracking 370. Whoa. That's a lot of jargon. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> Do we have any pilots in the house? Can you give me layman's terms? Please. They were going fast. They were really high. Not in the correct direction. Boom. Yeah. Um, all right. So at 2.25, the aircraft satellite communication system sent a logon request message. This was the first message since the... ACARS transmission at 107, which was relayed by satellite to a ground station, both operated by satellite telecommunications company MRSAT. After logging onto the network, the satellite data unit aboard the aircraft responded to hourly status requests from MRSAT and two ground aircraft telephone calls at 239 and 713, which were unanswered by the cockpit. The final status request and aircraft acknowledgement occurred at 8.10, about one hour and 40 minutes after it was scheduled to arrive in Beijing. The aircraft sent a logon request at 8.19, which was followed after a response from the ground station by a logon acknowledgement message at 8.19. The logon acknowledgement is the last piece of data available from Flight 370. The aircraft did not respond to a status request from a Marsat at 9.15. So, Malaysian Airlines issued a media statement at 7.24, which was one hour after the scheduled arrival time of the flight at Beijing, stating that communication with the flight had been lost by Malaysian uh, Airlines at 2.40, and that the government had initiated search and rescue operations. The time when contact was lost was later corrected to 121. Neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication systems relayed a distress signal. 
indications of bad weather or technical problems before the aircraft vanished from radar screens. On March 24th, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak appear, appeared before media at, what is that, 10 o'clock? Yep. At 10 o'clock local time to give a statement regarding Flight 370, during which he announced that he had been briefed by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch that it and MRSAT, the satellite data provider, had concluded that the airliner's last position last position before it disappeared was in the southern Indian Ocean, as there were no places where it could have landed. The aircraft must have crashed into the sea. Beautiful. I mean, deductive reasoning leaves no other options. That's true. It, it went into the sea. Um, there have been a few reported sightings. The news media reported several of these, um, of which an aircraft fitting the description of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. So on March 19th, 2014, CNN reported that witnesses, including fi fishermen, an oil rig worker, and people at the Kuda... Huvadu Atoll in the Maldives saw the missing airliner. So the fishermen claimed to have seen an unusually low flying aircraft off the coast of Cotabaru, located in the northeastern peninsular Malaysia. The oil rig worker was about 186 miles southeast of Vungtau, claimed he saw a burning object in the sky that morning, a claim credible enough for the Vietnamese authorities to send search and rescue mission to that area. An Indonesian fisherman reported witnessing an aircraft crash near the Malacca Straits. This is a narrow strait located in the area of the Malay Peninsula and connects to the Andaman Sea with the South China Sea. So, we do know that Flight 370 was in this area at some point during the flight. But <clears throat> I don't think it crashed in the Andaman Sea or the South China Sea because it made it over to the southern Indian Ocean. Right. So did this Indonesian fisherman witness another aircraft crash near, uh, near the Malacca Straits? Fucking maybe. <sighs> Seems unlikely, but possible. Possible. Um, three months later, the Daily Telegraph reported that a British woman sailing in the Indian Ocean claimed to have seen an aircraft on fire. Hmm. So, all of these seem plausible. I agree. Um, I think there's something stuck in my hand gross yeah i don't know what it is it's been like this for a while but is it glue have you super glued anything recently no it's like a splinter maybe do you want something i've been trying not to fuck with it too much but i think when i get home i might get my tweezers and pull on it a little bit um, peroxide might bubble it out a little. Yeah. 
I have some of that too. Um, let's see. So, four hours after the communication was lost, search and rescue efforts were coordinated, of course. Uh, search efforts began in the Gulf of Thailand and the South China Sea. On the second day of the search, Malaysian officials said that radar recordings indicated that Flight 370 may have turned around before vanishing from radar screens. The search zone was expanded to include part of the Strait of Malacca. On March 12th, the chief of the Royal Malaysian Air Force announced that an unidentified aircraft believed to be 370 had traveled across the Malay Peninsula and was last sighted on military radar um, about 370 kilometers northwest of the island of Penang. And search efforts were subsequently increased as the Andaman Sea and in the Andaman Sea and Bay of Bengal. On March 15th, the same day upon which the analysis was disclosed publicly, authorities announced that they would abandon search efforts in the South China Sea, the Gulf of Thailand, and the Strait of Malacca in order to focus their efforts on the two corridors, the Northern Arc from Northern Thailand to Kazakhstan, which was soon discounted for the aircraft, would have had to pass through heavily militarized airspace, and those countries claimed that their military radar would have detected an unidentified aircraft entering their airspace, of course. Obviously. Or maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they had something to do with it. Maybe Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 was um, hidden by technology that we don't have on the Earth, which is why it left the Kuala Lumpur air traffic control radar and military radar. That could be it, dude. That's probably it. Fucking case closed. Um, So the Southern Indian Ocean. The emphasis of the search was shifted to the Southern Indian Ocean west of Australia And within Australia's aeronautical and maritime search and rescue regions that extended to 75 degrees east longitude. Accordingly, on March 17th, Australia agreed to manage the search in the southern locus from Sumatra to the southern Indian Ocean. What's weird is I just don't think about Australia being near the Indian Ocean? Yeah. But it is. It is. I looked at the globe. It's out there. But for some reason, I just feel like they're not they're not that close. But they are. I mean, relatively speaking, of course. So, from March 18th to March 27th, 2014, the search of Efforts focused on a 305,000 kilometer squared area um, about 2,600 kilometers southwest of Perth. Perth is a cool name. I don't know what part of Australia that is, though. The part that touches the South Indian Ocean. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Between April 2nd and April 17th, an effort was made to detect the underwater locator beacons, ULBs, 
informally known as pingers that are attached to the aircraft's flight recorders because the beacon's batteries were expected to expire around April 7th. Now, I do remember when this story was kind of like happening that they were talking about the black box a lot. Like they were never able were never able to find the black box of the airplane. Is that like the SDU or is it like the pingers? <clears throat> I thought in my research that this would come up. It didn't. It I think the black box is an informal term, kind of like how pingers is the informal term for the underwater beacons. So black box never came up. I kept waiting for it. But there are so many different things that are attached to an airplane that are supposed to, like, send radio signals to, like, satellite communication, radio communication, voice communication, radar shit. There's so many different ways to track an aircraft that I couldn't figure out which one was... Maybe they're all in the black box. They fucking could be. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Either way... It's weird that there are so many ways to track an airplane, and this one has never been found. There's like 47 unique ways to track something. Yeah. It's very weird. Anyway, so the Beacon's batteries were expected to expire. I don't know what happens after they expire. Is it just untrackable? I feel like that's kind of a design flaw, but who knows? Um, between April 4th and April 8th, several acoustic detections were made that were close to the frequency and rhythm of the sound emitted by the flight recorders, ULBs. Analysis of the acoustic detections determined that, although unlikely, the detections could have come from a damaged ULB. So they were getting something. Yeah. From the ocean. But then they did a sonar search of the seafloor near the detections between April 14th and April, and May 28th, but yielded no sign of Flight 370. In a March 2015 report, it was revealed that the battery of the ULB attached to Flight 370's flight data recorder may have expired in December of 2012, thus may not have been capable of sending signals as if it were not expired. Right. Which, duh. Isn't that the point of an expiration date? I would say yes. Like, hey, it seems obvious that a battery that is expired is not going to be as detectable as one that isn't. Right. So, while there may have been a few items of wreckage found, which we will go over, the main body of aircraft was not found. Which is weird, because it's huge. Yeah, it's like... It's large enough to hold 282 people. Yeah. And all of their luggage. And cargo. Yep. That is massive. It was aliens. I mean, it had to have been something. It was aliens. They went into a vortex and now they're living in another dimension somewhere. We did talk about the vortexes when we did the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, they're out there. They're fucking out there. They're living in a parallel universe where it's September and it's 68 degrees, not 98 degrees. Gross. Side note. 
Should we start a girl band called 68 Degrees? 69. 69 Degrees. That'd be really funny. It would. In January 2018, Ocean Infinity announced that it was planning to resume the search in the narrowed 25,000 kilometer squared area. And the search attempt was approved by the Malaysian government, providing that payment would be made only if the wreckage were found. Sucks to suck, Ocean Infinity. By the end of May in 2018, the vessel had searched a total area of over 112,000 kilometers, which is over 43,000 square miles. That is so many. Um, Malaysia's new transport minister, Lok Siu Fook, announced on May 23rd, 2018, that the search for MH370 would conclude at the end of the month. Ocean Infinity confirmed on May 31st that its contract with the Malaysian government had ended and it was reported on June 9th, 2018 that the Ocean Infinity search had come to an end. Open floor mapping data collected during the search have been donated to the Nippon Foundation. Um, Jebco Seabed 2030 project <laughs> to be incorporated into the global map of the ocean floor. No discoveries were made by Ocean Infinity. In March of 2022, Ocean Infinity committed to resuming its search in 2023 or 2024, pending approval by the Malaysian government. I mean, at this point, why though? I mean, I guess. It would be like the passengers' families wanting to, just wanting to know. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's a whole plane, you know? It It is. Fuck, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like maybe the families of the passengers at this point are kind of like, it's pretty much confirmed the plane crashed, so we kind of know what happened. It's not like they're going to get remains. That's true. At this point, I would assume. Yeah. Maybe the salt water in the ocean would preserve the remains, though. It fucking could. That would be weird, right? You I just... mean, they'd be soggy, but... Yeah. Pruny, for sure. Can you imagine, like, stumbling upon that aircraft as, like, I don't know, a deep 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 sea fisherman <laughs> and you just find it i feel like if if it's going to be found it's probably going to be randomly found yeah it's going to be found by some middle-aged man just trying to you know yeah yeah talk. it's just or like some marine biology phd students from fucking perth right they're going to be trying to gather sediments from the bottom of the ocean and stumble upon it. That's true. And there's just going to be 227 people buckled in their seats in this airplane. Ugh. Weird. Okay, so debris. There was some debris found. Several pieces of debris, in fact, on the coast of Africa and on Indian Ocean Islands off the coast of Africa. Um, the first piece was discovered July 29th, 2015 at 
Réunion. I believe this is a French territory. Um, and all pieces have been confirmed as pieces of Flight 370. The bulk of the aircraft has not been located, obviously, as we've said. So the first piece was the flapperon. So the right flapperon was discovered in July 2015 on a beach in St. Andre Réunion. I am just going off the seat of my pants with that pronunciation. Yeah. An island in western Indian Ocean, and the flapperon is a piece of the wing. It is a sort of control piece. Um, I had to look it up, a uh, picture of what the flapperon is. So, like, you have the wing, and then you have the pieces, like, on the back of the wing that move with the air. Right. So there's, like, three pieces. There's a long piece that goes from the wingtip to, like, the middle of the wing, and then you have the flapperon, which is a square and then you have the piece closest to the body of the plane. Yes. So the flapper on is in the middle, and it moves. All these three pieces move. So that's what that is. It was found on the beach. Also found in late February of 2016 was an object bearing a stencilized label of the words, No Step, Found off the coast of Mozambique, early photographic analysis suggested that it could have come from the aircraft's horizontal stabilizer or from the leading edges of the wings. Cool. Uh, the part was found by a man named Blaine Gibson on a sandbank in Basratu, Basaruto Archipelago, off the coast of... Vilanculos in southern Mozambique, around 2,000 kilometers southwest of where the flaperon had been found the previous July. The fragment was sent to Australia, where experts identified it as almost certainly a horizontal stabilizer panel from Flight 370. In December of 2015, a man named Liam Lauder found a piece of gray debris on a beach in southern Mozambique. But only after reading in March 2016 about the find by Gibson of the stabilizer, which was found about 190 miles from his own area of residence, I guess. At this point is when he alerted authorities. So he kept it in his for about four months before he reported it. Oh, Why you would just hold on to... A, piece of gray metal I don't really know oh, no. but uh the piece was again flown to Australia for analysis it carried a stencilized code of 676 EB which was identified as being a part of a Boeing 777 flap track fairing and the style of lettering matched that of stencils used by Malaysian Airlines making it almost certain that it came from flight 370 uh, between March and May of 2016, other pieces of gray debris were found in areas near-ish where the flapperon and the stabilizer and everything else had already been found. All pieces that were found were turned over to the Malaysian government and found to most likely be from Flight 370. Um, also, after finding the flapperon in the, on the St. Andrew Island, Andre Island, French police conducted a search and found a damaged suitcase 
that could also be connected to flight 370, but there's no real way to know if that's true. All right, so next is the analysis of satellite communication um, from 2.25 a.m. to 8.19 a.m. Although the ACARS data link on Flight 370 stopped functioning between 1.07 and 2.03, um, which was most likely around the same time the plane lost contact by secondary radar, the SDU remained operative. After last contact by primary radar west of Malaysia, the following events were recorded um, in the log of Marsat's ground station at Perth in Western Australia. It is clear that the aircraft was operational until at least 8.19 a.m. due to the logon acknowledgement message transmitted by the aircraft. And since... Oh, my God. What? It, there. Oh, it fucking slid over. Like, the whole window slid off screen. Oh. And now I'm back at the top of the page, so... Cool. Please hold. There we go. Since the aircraft's SDU was working um, and it needs location information to operate, the aircraft's navigation system had to also be working. And since the aircraft did not respond to the 9.15 a.m. ping, the aircraft lost the ability to communicate with, ground, with the ground station between 8.19 and 9.15 a.m. By 8.19 a.m., um, 3.70 had been in the air for 7 hours and 38 minutes, making it likely that the plane had run out of fuel. Right, so those are all of the inferences that can be made from the, from the data that they have, basically, from the automated messages and, like, message acknowledgements transmitted by the plane itself. Yeah. Okay, so there are a couple of theories. So obviously the first theory is a power interruption. The SATCOM link functioned normally from pre-flight until it responded to ground air message with an acknowledgement at 107. Ground to air messages continue to be transmitted to flight 370 in, in Marsat's network and sent multiple requests for acknowledgement messages at 2.03 without a response. So at some time between 1.07 and 2.03, power was lost to the SCU. At 2.25, the aircraft's SCU then sent a logon request. So I don't necessarily know the difference between acknowledging a message and logon requests, but the SCU was still doing something at 2.25. Right. But it does say it's uncommon for a logon request to be made in flight. But it could occur for multiple reasons. And an analysis of the characteristics and timing of the request suggests a power interruption during the flight as the reason why this transmission was made. So I'm guessing you log on to the SDU pre-flight. Yeah. So it doesn't happen in flight because you've already done that and it should be logged on for the duration of the flight. That makes sense. So that's okay. A power interruption could also be happening in conjunction with one of the other theories. Um, 
Unresponsive crew is another. So an analysis of the ATSB comparing the evidence available with three uh, for Flight 370 had three categories of incidents and in-flight upset, or like a stall of the plane, a glide event, which would come from engine failure, fuel exhaustion, and an unresponsive crew. Um, an unresponsive crew event best fit the available evidence for the five-hour period that the flight traveled south over the Indian Ocean without communication, but it also did not deviate from the track that it was on once it redirected, which was likely an autopilot. So unresponsive crew seems kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. um, hypoxia is another theory. Hypoxia is a condition in which the body or region of the body is deprived of adequate oxygen supply at the tissue level. It can be classified as either generalized, affecting the whole body, or local, affecting a specific region of the body. So um, hypoxia can occur when uncontrolled decompression occurs, which is an unplanned drop in the pressure of a sealed system like an aircraft cabin. So um, uncontrolled decompression could have happened inside the plane, which resulted in all the passengers and crew developing hypoxia. Yeah. And then the flight was an autopilot, coasted until it ran out of fuel, and then crashed in the Indian Ocean. That's that theory. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Um, it also seems really unlikely that that many people would all develop hypoxia. I agree. I mean... Even if there was uncon uh, uncontrolled decompression in the aircraft cabin, maybe some of the people would, but would all of them simultaneously develop hypoxia? Fuck, I don't know. Seems like a weird event. Seems like it wouldn't happen to me. Yeah, I agree. So, hijacking. With crew or passenger or both involved. As we've already stated, two of the passengers were Iranian citizens using passports from Austria and Italy. Um, of course, this raised some eyebrows, but both, man, both men had entered Malaysia in February with valid Iranian passports and were believed to be there seeking asylum and not terrorist threats. So they were cleared. Right. One of the other passengers was a flight engineer for a Swiss jet charter company and he came under suspicion because simply because he would have had the necessary skills to render the plane incommunicable. And this also didn't go anywhere. That seems like a tenuous connection at best. But U.S. officials believe the most likely explanation is that someone in the cockpit reprogrammed the aircraft's autopilot to travel south across the Indian Ocean. Duh. So police searched the homes of the pilots and seized financial records for all 12 crew members, including bank statements, credit card bills, mortgage documents. On April 2nd, 2014, Malaysia's police inspector general said that more than 170 interviews had been conducted as a part of Malaysia's criminal investigation, including interviews with family members of the pilots and the crew. 
Media reports claim that Malaysian police had identified Captain Zahari as the prime suspect in the event that is determined that human intervention was proven to be the cause of the disappearance. So the U.S. FBI reconstructed deleted data from Captain Zahari's home flight simulator, but a Malaysian government spokesperson indicated that nothing sinister had been found. The prelim report issued by Malaysia in March of 2015 stated that there was, quote, no evidence of recent or imminent significant financial transactions carried out by any of the pilots or crew, and the analysis of the behavior of the pilots on CCTV showed no significant behavioral changes. However, in 2016... A leaked American document stated that a route on pilot Captain Zahari's home flight simulator, which closely matched the projected flight over the Indian Ocean, was found during the FBI analysis of the flight simulator's computer hard drive. This was later confirmed by the ATSB, although the agency stressed that this did not prove the pilot was involved. The find was similarly confirmed by the Malaysian government. So the pilot did it. Maybe. I mean, it's kind of weird that on his home computer flight simulator, he would have the deviation over the South Indian Ocean. Yeah. And then that be the exact path that the flight went before it crashed. True. Seems that's not looking good for Captain Zahari. No. Do we have to do this cargo section? Um, it's really just about batteries. So basically, the lithium ion batteries can cause intense fires, and this cargo contained lithium ion batteries. So it could have caught fire. Could have caught fire while the fucking captain was fucking around? I mean, yeah. A, one thing doesn't have to be true. He could have rerouted the plane. He obviously could have would have known how far the plane could fly without refueling. Right. So he could have had a destination in mind and then all of a sudden, the lithium ion batteries catch fire. And one of the witnesses did say the British woman who was in the South China or the Southern Indian Ocean said she saw a plane on fire. Well, that could be it. So it's it's all the things. Um, I guess we'll just wrap this up. We kind of already said. Oh, well, I said that I'm interested in Captain Zahari. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. So. I mean, I don't think that it just fucking disappeared out of nowhere. Yeah, it it is interesting that they can't find it, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that it left its charted course is is concerning, but the fact that it's disappeared is very weird. The fact that it left the charted course, to me, clearly says captain. Right. But where the fuck did it go? Yeah, where is it? So, it's a mystery, and we'll probably never know. Nope. I mean, they are. They might resume their search next year or the year after. I hope they don't, though. 
It see it sounds stupid to say I hope they don't find it. I like to live in the mystery. That's true. But you know, for the people who passed away in the crash, their families deserve some information. So. Absolutely. That's a lot of fucking people to just die. That's so many fucking people. Uh, so sorry to all their families. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, our music was done by Ariel. And our artwork was done by Laura. So, big thanks. Uh, blessings in all your houses. Yeah. Uh, please subscribe to our show. Please share the show. You can rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify and wherever else exists. Um, and that's all. So um, stay tuned. Some other day this week, we're going to have a bonus episode on some breaking news. So hell yeah, watch out for that. And uh, in the meantime, please be kind. And stay weird. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.